Hello and welcome back to this, the second instalment of our look at the life and death of Faisal, who ruled Saudi Arabia as king in the 1960s and 70s. Last week we explored the rise of the House of Saud, from its contested origins, through wars and scheming, considering its bond with the Wahhabi or Salafi religious sect, and its ties to British intrigues in the Middle East. As we heard in the previous episode, briefly in the early 1800s, the Saudis ruled the bulk of the Arabian Peninsula, including the cities of Mecca and Medina. However, at the end of the First World War, it was their rivals in the House of Hashim who had control over those holy cities and the surrounding Kingdom of Hejaz, which stretched along the Red Sea coast of the Arabian Peninsula. It is from this point that we will move on to explore the rise of Faisal, his long feud with his half-brother, and the circumstances that might have contributed to his assassination at the hands of one of his own relatives. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. In 1921, Ibn Saud, the leader of his clan and the father of many sons, including Prince Faisal, finally defeated his Rashidi rivals in Central Arabia. He claimed the title Sultan of Najid, a realm that stretched from the desert of Oman all the way to, well, the desert of Syria, with a lot of desert in between. But the key aim of Ibn Saud was to battle his way to the Red Sea, to take control of the Hejaz region, and to assume the title of custodian of the two holy mosques. That would not only greatly expand his realm, it would give him, and his Salafi religious sect, great authority over the Arab and wider Muslim world. In this, they were aided by Britain, as it plotted and conspired to assert its imperial dominance over the Middle East. London turned against its former ally, Ali bin Hussein, Sharif of Hejaz, because he had refused to recognise British rule in Palestine and, in particular, the promise made in the Balfour Declaration to establish a Jewish homeland there. In December 1925, Hussein surrendered to the Saudi army backed by the British. Ibn Saud then proclaimed himself King of Hejaz. Always not smooth sailing for Ibn Saud after his takeover of Hejaz, however. The zealotry of his Ikhwan soldiers, the fanatical tribal warriors indoctrinated by the Salafi clergy, was a double-edged sword. 
While their burning faith made them formidable in battle, they also viewed their loyalty as to Allah above all, and that meant above their loyalty to their king. If they felt that the king was not doing as Allah would wish, or what they thought Allah's wishes were, well... The Iqwan started to grumble that Ibn Saud was failing to fulfil his divinely ordained mission, the jihad for which they had fought. In particular, they were enraged that the Saudi leader, out of political expediency, continued to allow towns and tribal groups in the area that he had incorporated into his kingdom to continue with their traditional religious and cultural practices. Usually the ways of local people did not conform to the ultra-strict interpretation of Islam practised by the Ikhwan. Mecca and Medina were relatively cosmopolitan cities, at least by the standards of the Arabian Peninsula. Ibn Saud allowed local elites in these cities to continue to carry on much as before. For over a thousand years, Mecca and Medina had welcomed Muslim pilgrims from around the world, and therefore the city's leaders, clerics and merchants tended to accommodate the diverse customs of their international co-religionists. Ibn Saud did not want to jeopardise his control over the holy cities by being too heavy-handed with the locals. In addition, he wished to present himself to the wider Islamic world as a custodian who would welcome and protect all the faithful, not just those who adhered to the strict Salafi rules. To most Muslims, the Wahhabis were an unknown denomination whose precepts were quite alien. The Ikhwan thought that Ibn Saud's policy of accommodating the ways of other Muslims was a betrayal of the very cause for which they had fought. To them, the populations of Mecca and Medina were sinners who had sullied the holiest sites of Islam by welcoming foreigners with impure practices. The Ikhwan also opposed the alliance that Ibn Saud had formed with Britain. When his son, Prince Faisal, travelled to London on a diplomatic mission, the most extreme cadres of the Ikhwan accused the Saudi royals of betraying the faith, by travelling to a distant land of infidels, the very Christians who had seized Jerusalem and who were allowing European Jews to pour into a Muslim land. Soon a rebellious faction of the Ikhwan was in full-scale revolt against their king. At the Battle of Sabila in 1929, Abdul Aziz ibn Saud led his loyalist forces to a decisive victory. In this, the Saudi royals were, again, backed by the British, who deployed the fledgling Royal Air Force to bomb Ikhwan camps in advance of the battle. Thereafter, the Ikhwan was reformed into a body called the Saudi National Guard. Only the most loyal tribesmen, often relations of the royal family by marriage, were permitted to serve in its ranks. The National Guard still exists today as a branch of the country's armed forces, focused solely on protecting the House of Saud from any threat of internal rebellion. After quelling the Ikhwan, Ibn Saud merged his distinct dominions of Hejaz and Najid into a single kingdom, which in 1932 was renamed Saudi Arabia, in honour of, well, himself and his dynasty. He now ruled the great majority of the Arabian Peninsula. 
Up until the 20th century, this really was a backwater of the world. But with the discovery of enormous oil reserves along the Persian Gulf coast, the Saudis' territory became very important indeed. After years of searching for a commercially viable source of oil, in 1938 foreigners discovered and started to exploit the first major oil field in the country. But it was not the British who were the beneficiaries this time. Faced with the rise of Hitler's Germany on its doorstep and the growing threat of Imperial Japan near its Asian colonies, Britain was in a greatly weakened position. Rather, there was a new kid in town. A consortium of American oil companies made a deal with the Saudis in 1933 to explore for oil. By 1941, Saudi Arabia had become a major oil exporter, good timing for America, which entered the Second World War that year following the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. A new company was created, Saudi Aramco, a joint venture between US interests and the Saudi monarchy. Aramco would go on to become the largest oil company in the world, in fact, one of the largest companies of any sort by revenue. A partnership between Saudi Arabia and the United States was born, a close, though sometimes tense, relationship that has lasted for 90 years. This partnership would be a boon for American oil companies, and it eventually made the Saudi royal family vastly, vastly rich. The Americans provided the drilling technology, the engineers, the pipelines, the refineries, and the ports, while the Saudis would provide, well, the sand to extract the oil from. I'm being glib, of course, but really the House of Saud brought one thing to the table. Stability, built on ruthless internal control enforced by the ultra-loyal tribal fighters of the National Guard. The Saudis might have conquered Arabia in order to become the custodians of the two holy mosques of the Red Sea coast, but the treasure that would fuel them came from being custodians of the world's biggest oil reserves along the opposite Persian Gulf. Basically, Ibn Saud and his sons had won the jackpot. Let's take a break. I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you that we have a Patreon bonus to accompany these episodes. Available to subscribers now, this bonus episode is on the suspicious death of King Ghazi of Iraq, the son of one of the Hashemite princes that we've heard about. It's a tale of geopolitical intrigue, jealousy, illicit love, and dark rumours of murder. There are Nubian warriors, Nazis, a race car, and a sticky end for a British diplomat. So, basically just another day for Assassinations Podcast Patreon listeners. I'd like to thank long-term Patreon supporter Craig, who suggested this subject. It's a good one, and I think the fate of King Ghazi has some similarities to the fate of a much later royal personage who died under suspicious circumstances in a car crash. Patreon supporters gain exclusive access to content and perks, such as this episode and a ton of other bonuses. Just go to patreon.com slash assassinationspodcast. That's patreon.com slash assassinationspodcast. Now, back to the show.
The Saudi royal family, who just a few years earlier had never seen a camera, by the end of the Second World War controlled the oil wells that would fuel the modern global economy. American claims to be a beacon of freedom and democracy around the world, a central component of US Cold War propaganda as well as America's national identity, accounted for nothing when it came to their allies in the House of Saud. As long as Abdulaziz ibn Saud and his sons kept the oil flowing, they could do as they liked in their desert kingdom. Except the Cold War rivalry between Washington and Moscow even managed to cast a little chill on this Saudi-US relationship. When the old king died in 1953, his son and named heir, Crown Prince Saud, assumed the throne. Yes, I'm sorry, there were many princes in the country and apparently a shortage of names. So the son and heir of King Abdulaziz Al Saud, aka Ibn Saud, was, um, Saud bin Abdulaziz Al Saud. I'm sorry folks, there's only so much I can do here. Hopefully it all makes sense. In 1902, Prince Saud was born to a woman from a powerful tribal family in eastern Arabia. She was just one of Ibn Saud's many wives, all of whom he wed to maintain the complex web of tribal alliances across the Arabian Peninsula. As a young prince, Saud served alongside his father in many battles as they struggled to unify their kingdom. He also represented his father abroad, including visits to Britain, continental Europe and the United States. But it was said that the old king really wanted Faisal, born in 1906 to a different wife, to succeed him. However, the king decided that it would be too destabilising to disinherit Saud, to whom the expansive royal family had already pledged their allegiance as heir. If only I had three sons, the dying king is reputed to have said. All of them, Faisal. Impressed by the development of the western countries he had visited, the newly enthroned King Saud strongly believed that his country had to modernise. Under his direction, a new road was built from the Red Sea port city of Jeddah to Mecca. He also sought to reform the country's primitive administrative bodies and financial system. He linked the Saudi currency, the rial, to the US dollar and established a central bank. He also expanded education, for elite men, and used some of the oil wealth pouring into the royal coffers to pay for social welfare programs for loyal subjects. He was criticised for being profligate, pouring money into a massive new royal palace on the outskirts of the kingdom's capital city, Riyadh. King Saud also sometimes ruffled feathers in the corridors of power in Washington. One of his first attempts at reform was to try to establish a national maritime oil tanker company in a joint venture with Greek billionaire businessman Aristotle Onassis. The deal, which ran counter to American interests, was soon scuppered. Time and again, Saud would defy, though generally in small ways, the expectations of his American allies. Actively pursuing a policy of international pan-Islamic unity, with Saudi Arabia at its core, naturally, King Saud issued direct involvement in the Cold War. He was no fan of communism, of course, 
but he saw no benefit in getting involved in Cold War geopolitics. He refused to join the Baghdad Pact, an Anglo-American anti-communist alliance of Middle Eastern countries, which included Iran, Iraq and Turkey. Rather, under his rule, Saudi Arabia joined the Non-Aligned Movement, a bloc of countries that included India, Yugoslavia, Egypt and many others, which refused to overtly take sides in the Cold War. In his 1957 State of the Union address, President Dwight Eisenhower elucidated a policy that the United States would provide economic assistance and aid, or use military force, if any country in the Middle East was being threatened by armed aggression. Eisenhower singled out the Soviet Union as the primary aggressor. This became known as the Eisenhower Doctrine which amounted to the assertion that the US had the right and responsibility to interfere in the region whenever it wished. While focused on the Soviets, the Eisenhower Doctrine also left the door open for the United States to take action to support Israel in the event of any conflict with its Arab neighbours. King Saud, who was a very vocal opponent of the very existence of the State of Israel, was reluctant to simply go along with this newly stated policy emanating from Washington. The same year, Saud and President Nasser of Egypt pressed the Eisenhower administration to intervene to compel Israel to end its occupation of Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. Israel had taken control of this Egyptian territory the year before, as a result of a conflict known as the Suez Crisis. This was a struggle between Britain, France and Israel on one side, and Egypt on the other, all vying for control over strategic waterways. The British and French wanted to retain their historic control of the Suez Canal, the vital route that connects the Mediterranean Sea with the Red Sea. President Nasser saw the canal as a vital piece of his country's infrastructure and he was opposed to its control by the old colonial powers. Meanwhile, the Israeli government was more concerned with seizing control of the Strait of Tehran, which lies between Egypt's Sinai Peninsula and Saudi Arabia. This narrow affords Israel its only access to the Red Sea. Israel also saw the Suez Crisis as an opportunity to occupy the entire Sinai Peninsula, effectively doubling the size of Israel and potentially bringing Israeli offensive forces within striking distance of Egypt's capital, Cairo. Under US pressure, Israel withdrew from the Sinai Peninsula after a year, not least because Eisenhower needed to placate his Arab allies at a time when the Soviet Union was trying to boost its influence in the region. Egypt's President Nasser was seen by the Americans as a potential threat to its Cold War interests. Nasser was a proponent of pan-Arab nationalism, the belief that the Arab people were one nation whose division was only the result of meddling by the European powers. Nasser also had policies to nationalise some aspects of the Egyptian economy, including the Suez Canal. The Americans had a complicated attitude to the nationalisation of the canal. On the one hand, the waterway had been controlled by Britain and France, and in the post-World War II era, the United States had a policy of generally supporting decolonisation, 
to the extent that control of global resources by the old European powers limited US access to or control of those resources. However, Nasser's nationalisation wasn't necessarily any more conducive to US interests. If Nasser gravitated to the Soviet Union, that could give Moscow a very useful ally in a strategically vital region. Ultimately, Nasser did turn to the USSR for military aid, but it wasn't ever an especially close alliance. Nasser remained in the non-aligned camp, and he never got the military hardware from the Soviets that he really wanted, long-range rockets capable of hitting targets deep inside Israel. But let's leave all that aside for now. Instead, we need to consider the difficult relationship between Saudi Arabia and Egypt, the two most powerful Arab countries. As I said, the Saudi monarchy sought to position itself as the preeminent Muslim country, and for that reason it promoted pan-Islamism. Nasser, on the other hand, was the leading advocate for pan-Arabism. These two ideologies offered very different roads that the Middle East might go down, and both Egypt and Saudi Arabia deployed their competing political creeds as they vied to play the role of preeminent Arab power in the region. Nasser's pan-Arab nationalism sought to erase those lines in the sand drawn by Britain and France, which we heard about last week an enormous game of risk that had divided Arab from Arab along quite arbitrary lines, while forcing others to exist in newly minted countries with no real social cohesion. Nasser believed that his version of nationalism could unite the Arab world. The three pillars of this ideology were, in my opinion, anti-colonialism, opposition to the division of the Middle East that took place following the First World War, Secondly, Arab Socialism, which I'd categorise as an effort to develop the region's quite rudimentary industrial base through nationalisation of key industries and to build up social infrastructure through redistributive government spending. While this was a socialistic policy agenda, it fell far short of communism. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, the third pillar of pan-Arab nationalism was opposition to the existence of the State of Israel, though it might be said that anti-Zionism was actually a manifestation of anti-colonialism, as Israel was a creation of the carve-up of the Levant after both world wars. While the Saudis could agree to aspects of pan-Arabism, they opposed key elements of it. Opposition to Israel, that was a given, yes, at least on paper, though in practice the Saudis generally had a rather flexible attitude towards Israel. But the Saudi monarchy was, no surprise, opposed to the progressive element of pan-Arabism. Anything with even a whiff of socialism was profoundly opposed. The Saudi royals were happy to splash their cash on generous social programmes, but these programmes were not mandated. Public welfare was not a social right of the people. Rather, welfare or public works or any other government spending were the personal gift of the king, a symbol of his Islamic largesse. In 1958, Nasser created a new Arab state that was supposed to begin the process of erasing those lines in the sand. This was the United Arab Republic, 
a union of Egypt and Syria into a single country. The two remaining Hashemite monarchies, Jordan and Iraq, in response also created a unified country called the Arab Hashemite Federation. Thus the Saudis were surrounded by new pan-Arab political entities. But the House of Saud had no intention of joining any such federation. What motive would they have to do so? There was no way they wanted to share their oil wealth, and they feared the reformism or progressivism that tinged the pan-Arab movement. Instead, the Saudis continued to promote pan-Islamism, a union of the faithful, not a political union. Besides, King Saud was already the de facto leader of an Arab alliance. The other, much smaller, Gulf sheikdoms, such as Bahrain, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates, all similar absolute monarchies with enormous hydrocarbon resources. Fortunately for Saudi interests, Nasser's United Arab Republic and the Hashemite Federation were both short-lived affairs. By the early 1960s, the dream of a unified Arab nation stretching from the sands of the Sahara to the marshes of the Euphrates, and from the Mediterranean coast to the mountains of Yemen, appeared dead and buried. That left a shared Islamic identity as the dominant unifying force in the Middle East, and that benefited the Saudis as custodians of the two holy mosques. Things would not go well for King Saud for long, though. The shadow of Faisal always loomed over the throne. The king's younger, more brilliant brother was the heir apparent. Ibn Saud had established that the line of succession in his new kingdom should be passed along a system of agnatic seniority. This is the principle of inheritance where the throne passed to a younger brother of the reigning king and not to that king's own sons. Under this system, a monarch's son of the next generation could only succeed if all the males of the elder generation had passed away. Given that Ibn Saud had many, many sons over a long life, that meant that there was no shortage of brothers to inherit the throne. In fact, the current king of Saudi Arabia is a son of Ibn Saud, a century after the unification of the kingdoms of Najid and Hejaz. King Saud lost much of his authority and power to Faisal in 1958 as a result of a debt crisis. Despite the money coming in from the sale of oil, Saud's lavish spending was bankrupting the kingdom. Unable to make payments on the national debt and with the real plummeting in value, Saud was forced to delegate most of his executive powers to Faisal. In this sibling rivalry, Faisal had the support of the extremely powerful religious authorities. Faisal's family on his mother's side was from the Al-Ash-Sheikh tribe. This tribe was descended from Muhammad ibn Ab al-Wahhab. Over 200 years since he established his sect, his progeny still occupied the most authoritative positions in the clergy. For a few more years, the brothers continued their rivalry, with authority ebbing and flowing between them, until in 1964, Faisal gained sufficient support within the wider royal family to force Saud to abdicate. The former king left his vast royal palace for a far more modest life of exile in Athens, Greece. 
Three years later, Saud died, leaving behind a mere 108 children and three surviving wives. While Saud had been a profligate spender who enjoyed all the trappings of extreme wealth, Faisal was famously austere in his personal habits. Saud had just about bankrupted his kingdom with frivolous spending, but Faisal preferred the modest life of a traditional tribal chieftain. He often slept in a Bedouin tent, furnished only with carpets and some cushions. He preferred to eat a simple herdsman's diet rather than the luxury comestibles preferred by many other royals. He was said to be thoughtful and pious, and he spent a great deal of time reading, and especially enjoyed poetry and Islamic literature. The plainness of his tastes, an almost ascetic lifestyle, certainly helped to bring down royal spending. But apart from that, he maintained and even expanded the very generous welfare system that made life comfortable for loyal subjects, combined of course with a highly repressive state apparatus to crack down on any signs of disloyalty. Basically, if you were a good little subject of the king, then you were granted a comfortable minimum income. Faisal also enacted various measures aimed at modernising the administration of the kingdom and improving infrastructure, which was still primitive in much of the country. Where Faisal really left his mark in the early years of his reign was through changes to the kingdom's power structures. One of his first acts was to establish a council of top royals to arbitrate any future issues with succession. With so many princes kicking around, palace intrigue was rife, and there was always the threat of internal coups, such as the one that had brought him to power. By naming trusted members of the royal family to this succession council, Faisal hoped to secure his own rule while establishing what he hoped would be a mechanism to safely pass the torch when the inevitable happened. He also enacted reforms to the ulema, the supreme religious authority in Saudi Arabia. Even though his mother's family had been instrumental in bringing him to power, Faisal ended the virtual monopoly that the Alash sheikhs had over the Supreme Clerical Council. By the early 1960s, there were a large number of clerics from other tribal families, young men who had benefited from the expansion of education during his brother's reign. Faisal recognised that young and ambitious clerics needed something to aspire to, and that it was therefore no longer feasible to have one family completely dominate the Supreme Religious Council. The ulema retained its great power and influence in the kingdom though, and the Alash Sheikh family continued to possess preeminent status within the clergy, and therefore they still played a major role in the affairs of state. In a surprise move, Faisal also abolished the role of the Grand Mufti. This was the most senior religious figure in Saudi Arabia, appointed by the king. The last Grand Mufti was Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Sheikh, a relative and close ally of Faisal. It was he who provided the religious legitimacy required for Faisal to finally seize the throne. But when the Grand Mufti died, the king decided not to appoint a replacement, Instead, Faisal abolished the position and created instead a new Ministry of Justice, which was part of his royal government. 
King Faisal was always careful to promote loyalists from outside the royal family and its old tribal allies, and to elevate non-Salafi Muslims to positions within his government. Faisal was acutely aware that the Al-Saud family and its clerical allies, while very powerful, represented only a small portion of the country. Other monarchies in the region had been overthrown by young, disaffected men, such as the coup led by Air Force Colonel Muammar Gaddafi that ousted the King of Libya. Tensions were simmering in Saudi Arabia too. The country was poised between medieval feudalism and the modern world. It had a young and restless population that was led by a relatively tiny royal clique. Many of these young Saudi men were zealous, trained by Salafi clerics, while the royal family, while very observant Muslims in public, were known, in many cases, to be extremely decadent and Western in their tastes behind closed doors or while on trips to London, Paris and New York. A significant challenge to the Saudi system came in response to the country's first television broadcast in 1965. Establishing a national television station was part of Faisal's effort to modernise his kingdom. Welcomed by many, it was condemned by some conservatives as a form of Western decadence. A group of men, including a junior member of the royal family named Khalid bin Musaid al-Saud, stormed the station in the capital city, Riyadh. The mini-rebellion was quickly put down by Saudi security forces, and Khalid was shot to death. Faisal knew that it was important to build a broader base of domestic support. He had to offer opportunities to junior members of the royal family, as well as non-royals, and to meet the expectations of the conservative religious forces while still modernising the country. Abroad, Faisal continued his brother's policy to promote the ideology of Islamic unity, with Saudi Arabia acting as the linchpin. To that end, he improved infrastructure in Mecca and Medina, enabling more pilgrims to visit the holy sites. He also amped up Saudi condemnation of Israel and support for the Palestinian causes. In fact, Faisal's attitude towards Israel ended up being, directly and indirectly, the defining aspect of his reign. In 1967, a new Arab-Israeli war broke out. Known as the Six-Day War, this was a conflict between Israel and a coalition of Arab states comprising Jordan, Syria and Egypt, with lesser assistance from Iraq and Saudi Arabia. The Six-Day War was the third major conflict between Israel and its Arab neighbours. Essentially, from the moment the State of Israel was established as a sovereign nation following the Second World War, it had been in conflict with the Arab population of its territory and across the wider region. As with its invasion of Egypt in 1956, the Six-Day War centred upon control of the Sinai Peninsula. President Nasser of Egypt had blocked Israeli vessels from passing through the Strait of Tehran. The Israelis stated that they considered this to be an act of war. Egypt responded by sending military forces into the Sinai which had been partially demilitarized and placed under United Nations supervision ever since the 1956 conflict. 
Seeing Egyptian forces advance, the Israelis launched what they initially claimed was a response to an Egyptian attack, but which they later described as preemptive airstrikes against Egyptian airfields. Caught off guard, almost the entire Egyptian air force was destroyed. There was then a great deal of confusion in Jordan and Syria as to what was going on. The extent of Egypt's losses was not made clear, hampering the ability of the Arab allies to respond. Egypt had by far the most developed military in the Arab world, with Jordan and Syria able to offer relatively poorly trained and equipped ground forces. With near total air superiority, the outcome of the war was obvious from the get-go. Israel had free reign to bomb airfields, tank formations, barracks, bunkers and settlements. The Arab allies were, effectively, defenceless. Within just six days, the Israeli military inflicted a stunning defeat of its neighbours. Some 20,000 Arab military personnel were killed, compared to fewer than 1,000 Israelis. Israel more than doubled the size of its territory, seizing once again the Sinai Peninsula, plus taking control of East Jerusalem and the West Bank from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. During the Six-Day War, King Faisal mobilised his armed forces in the north of the country, and he ordered thousands of soldiers to move into Jordan. However, they did not engage in any fighting against the Israelis. This Saudi effort was, in effect, a nominal show of support for the Arab cause. Faisal did not commit any Saudi warplanes to the fight, the one thing that the Arab side actually needed. It was probably a shrewd move. Israel's air superiority was so complete that Saudi warplanes stood little chance of success. It was only after the war that Faisal played his trump card. He opened his wallet. Saudi Arabia, together with Libya and Kuwait, agreed to establish a fund to support Arab refugees from the conflict. This was always the way. Saudi Arabia and all the Arab countries were forever willing to show their support for the displaced Palestinian population, the hundreds of thousands of people who had lived in camps in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria and Egypt since the creation of Israel in 1948, and the thousands more who were turned into refugees after 1967. Solidarity with the Palestinian cause became a shibboleth in the capital cities of the Arab world. No leader, whether royal or republican, Islamist or secular, not the Saudis or Nasser or any other Arab potentate, could have the slightest political credibility if they did not express opposition to Israel and send aid to the Palestinians. I'm not saying that there was no genuine sympathy in the Arab capitals for the Palestinian people who had been forced from their ancestral homeland by the creation and expansion of the State of Israel. But for the leadership of the Arab world, it was both easy and popular to voice support for their oppressed Palestinian brothers and sisters and throw some money and weapons their way. Over the next few years after the 1967 war, King Faisal gave hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to various Palestinian causes, much of it humanitarian, some of it assistance to militant groups. Thus Faisal boosted his status as the number one benefactor of the most popular cause in the Arab world. 
Seeking to cement this role, in 1969 Faisal helped to establish the Organisation of Islamic Cooperation. This was a body whose stated aim was to, quote, provide a collective voice to the Muslim world. A few months after its founding, the body held its first conference in Jeddah, not far from Mecca, in Saudi Arabia. This was an important moment in Faisal's reign. Under him, Saudi Arabia had finally assumed dominant status in the Middle East and across the global Islamic community. Faisal's main regional rival, President Nasser of Egypt, died in 1970. His successor was Anwar Sadat, who was less of a pan-Arab ideologue than his predecessor, and who eschewed the sort of global grandstanding that Nasser indulged in before the disastrous defeat of Egypt in the 1967 war. Recognising a potential ally, King Faisal formed a good working relationship with Sadat. On August 27, 1973, President Sadat returned to Egypt from a visit to Saudi Arabia, during which he'd met several times with King Faisal in the city of Jeddah. By this point, Faisal was providing Egypt with large subsidies, much of which was spent, indirectly, on rebuilding the Egyptian military, largely with Soviet equipment. During one of their meetings, Sadat allegedly told Faisal that Egypt was preparing an imminent invasion of the Sinai Peninsula, while Syria would attempt to retake the Golan Heights. Sadat did not expect Saudi military assistance in this war, merely the king's political and financial support. The account of this dialogue came from an Egyptian spy named Ashraf Marwan who claimed to be the only other person in the room when Sadat told Faisal of the plan. Mr Marwan was the subject of another episode of this show from back in 2019, an episode I called The Spy Who Fell to Earth, one of my favourite episodes of this show, by the way. Sadat launched an attempt to reclaim the Sinai Peninsula in October of 1973, Known in the Arab world as the Ramadan War, and in Israel and the West as the Yom Kippur War, the result was mixed. The Israelis were not defeated as such, but they were unprepared for the attack and suffered much heavier losses than in 1967. The Egyptians strengthened their position and ultimately retook control of the Sinai, though only after years of post-war negotiations the Syrians were unable to retake the Golan Heights. The United States and much of the Western world supported Israel in this conflict. In response, Faisal withdrew Saudi oil from world markets and encouraged other Arab countries to do likewise. This caused the 1973 oil crisis. The price of crude oil rose by a factor of four, from three US dollars per barrel in the summer of 1973 to nearly $12 per barrel by the spring of 74. This had enormous implications for the world economy, and not just in the short term. A deep recession ensued, causing short-term pain, but also bringing about the collapse of a slew of businesses contributing to the decline of heavy industry in the United States and elsewhere. The US auto industry in particular was hit, 
as the American auto companies generally manufactured large gas-guzzling cars. With gas prices surging, demand for smaller vehicles, often imported from Europe and Japan, surged. The oil embargo is widely regarded as the defining act of Faisal's reign. For it, he won enormous prestige amongst Arabs and Muslims globally. Equally, he earned the scorn of many in the West, as the economies of the United States and its allies tanked. The sharp increase in the price of oil, of course, greatly increased revenues for the Saudi Treasury. This revenue was spent by Faisal in part on increased support for Arab countries and the Palestinians. It is widely believed in the Arab world that Faisal's assassination in 1975 was a direct result of the oil crisis and his support for anti-Israel causes. He was, in this theory, the victim of a Western and or Israeli conspiracy. Now, I've seen no evidence to support this beyond the vaguely circumstantial. So what do we know about the death of the Saudi monarch? Well, remember the incident at the television station in Riyadh a decade earlier? It was the brother of the man slain during that attack who, on the 25th of March 1975, shot and killed the king. His name was Faisal bin Musaid al-Saud. I know, I know, there are a lot of Faisals and Sauds in this episode. Anyhow, the assassin was a nephew of the king. He was also a man with a rather odd biography. Born in 1944 to the 12th son of King Abdulaziz, he was educated amongst his fellow Saudi princes in Riyadh, before moving to the United States to continue his studies at San Francisco State College in 1966. There, the young Faisal ditched the traditional Arab garb and adopted the fashion and lifestyle of the countercultural movement emerging in San Francisco at the time. He also studied at the University of Colorado at Boulder, where he gained a bachelor's degree before beginning a master's at Berkeley. Despite attending all these schools, according to his peers and professors, Faisal was a very poor student who preferred acid trips and weed to books and lectures. He was arrested in 1969 for drug possession, but charges were dropped, probably thanks to his royal status. During this time, he had a girlfriend named Christina Surma. The prince dropped out of his master's programme and travelled to Lebanon and Europe. Coming home to Saudi Arabia, he was given a teaching position at Riyadh University. On the fateful day, he went to the royal palace in Riyadh to meet his uncle, the king. Upon recognising his nephew, King Faisal leaned close to him to accept a kiss as a mark of respect. Instead, the prince pulled a revolver from his robe and shot his uncle twice in the head. Bodyguards seized him, and the elder Faisal was rushed to hospital. Doctors were unable to save the life of the king. Prince Faisal was taken into custody and swiftly declared to be insane. After all, who in their right mind would commit regicide, and against their own uncle no less? 
However, the Saudi authorities changed their tune and declared that Faisal was sane and therefore could be put to death. On June 18, 1975, a Sharia court found him guilty of murder and condemned him to public execution. Just hours later, he was brought to a public square where a small crowd had gathered and beheaded with a single sword blow to the neck. It is not clear why young Faisal killed his namesake, the king. Whatever he might have said to Saudi authorities was never made public. And maybe he was mad. Or maybe he was a patsy, a poor dupe used as a pawn in a palace coup, which replaced Faisal with his half-brother, Khalid bin Abdulaziz al-Saud. Might Khalid have wanted to kill his brother in order to gain the throne? Or maybe it was some other royal who was angry at the king. Perhaps the assassination was simply an act of revenge. Prince Faisal's brother had been killed in 1965 during the raid on the television station, and he sought to avenge this death. Proponents of the conspiracy theory that the West, or Israel, was behind the assassination point to the fact that the young Faisal spent a good deal of time in America, and, in particular, they point to his drug usage as evidence that he could have been turned into a US intelligence asset. Did the CIA have dirt on Prince Faisal? Evidence of his drug use that they threatened to release, thus ruining him, lest he do their bidding? Some have pointed to the prince's relationship with Christina Surma as evidence that the Americans lay behind the assassination. Faisal was seemingly still in correspondence with his girlfriend in 1975. Was she a US intelligence operative, a honey trap, used to spy on and control the prince? I don't know about this theory. Certainly, the US intelligence agencies would not have been indifferent to Prince Faisal's presence in the United States or his arrest for drug possession, so I could quite believe they were spying on him and perhaps trying to manipulate him. They certainly seem to have protected him. And, of course, it is a common trick of intelligence and police agencies to use a seemingly innocent relationship as a means to spy on and control a target. But we would need far, far more evidence to even begin to cast aspersions on Christine Surma's good name. Parenthetically, and in a rather strange twist of history, Christine Surma went on to marry a man named Abbott Von Meader, who was a well-known John F. Kennedy impersonator. But, in short, we just don't know why King Faisal al-Saud was murdered. I think we can say this, however. From its mysterious roots, through its dynastic twists and turns, its murky relations with foreign powers, and its alliance with an obscure and extreme sect of Islam, the House of Saud has emerged as a powerful and dangerous force in the world today. Saudi Arabia was and remains an absolute monarchy where the subjects of the king have no rights, at least not in the western sense of the word. Arbitrary arrest and imprisonment, torture, silencing of any hint of dissent, no free press, no meaningful elected bodies, no political parties, 
little religious freedom, and zero criticism of the royal family or the clerical elite. These are the realities of life in the desert kingdom. Like Prince Faisal nearly half a century ago, those accused and convicted of crimes can be swiftly sentenced to death and publicly beheaded. Others caught up in the Saudi justice system can be disappeared, mutilated, or stoned to death. The crucifixion of corpses still takes place, a gruesome display of the power of the state. All this without anything approaching what would be considered due process. Women were until very recently not allowed to drive cars or leave their homes without a male chaperone or permission from a male relative. The situation facing the millions of overseas workers in Saudi Arabia is even worse. Manual and service industry workers from Indonesia, Pakistan, the Philippines, India and other countries often have their passports and wages withheld by their employers. Domestic staff routinely face abuse and tens of thousands of them are considered to be de facto slaves six decades after Faisal officially ended legal slavery in the country. Yes, that's right, Saudi Arabia had legal slavery until the 1960s. Today, the sprawling Saudi royal family is estimated to be worth some $1.5 trillion. That's trillion with a T. And most of this incredible wealth is concentrated in the hands of the most senior royals, such as Crown Prince Mohammed bin Saud, who reputedly has a Leonardo da Vinci painting hanging in the master bedroom suite of his $400 million mega yacht. And, as some of you might remember from our episodes on the slaying of Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi, the Crown Prince is willing to go to any lengths to silence his critics, in the full knowledge that he has the support of the United States, Britain and other powerful countries, all willing to turn a blind eye for the sake of black gold and lucrative arms sales. Just as the Saudi royals used their fanatical Ikhwan warriors to defeat their enemies in the early 20th century, so today militant zealots spurred by Salafi ideology and financed by Saudi princes still wage a perverse form of jihad across the region and around the world. It is a form of divisiveness that Mr. Hemfer, who we met last week, whether he be real or fictitious, would no doubt approve of. Thank you for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. It was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Lindsay Morse produces and edits the show. Our theme music is by Graham Ronald. For information on how to get in touch, check out the show notes that accompany this episode. There, you can also find out how to support the show through Patreon. I hope you'll join me for the next installment of Assassinations Podcast, which comes out next month. In it, we'll look at the terrible events in June of 2001, when nine members of the Nepali royal family were massacred by one of their own relatives. Until then, goodbye.